Have you ever uttered the phrase, that's not exactly how I saw that going? Do you think the guy in Hawaii who hit the wrong button this past weekend might have thought to himself, you know, that's not exactly how I saw that going? If you don't know what happened, if you were in Hawaii this past Saturday, you woke up at 8 o'clock to a notification on your phone that said this, ballistic missile threat inbound, and then some other gobbledygook, and then these three words, not a drill. Not a drill. And then if you turned on the television, the news station started telling people to remain where they were, stay indoors. I mean, how do you prepare for an inbound missile strike? Get under your desk, right? Stay indoors. They said if if you're driving, this came over the radio apparently, they said, hey, if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road and, and either get inside somewhere or lay on the floor of your car. Again, they're, they're just making stuff up at this point. If a missile lands anywhere near your vehicle, if you're laying on the floor or sitting on top, you're, you're, you're dead either way, right? 38 minutes. 38 minutes it took for them to finally get the, the message sent back out. Hey, you know what? Um, Joe pushed the wrong button, and uh, this was all a big mistake, so you don't have to shelter in place. You can get up off the floor of your car and you can continue to go about the rest of your day. Meanwhile, everybody was waiting, terrified, looking for the blast, the impact, the end, wondering what in the world was happening. And all of a sudden, the plans for for tomorrow, for Sunday, became totally irrelevant. In fact, for everyone on the island, the plans for the rest of Saturday became totally irrelevant. Nobody had penciled into their day planner, take shelter to avoid dying from a ballistic missile threat. Uh, that's a pretty extreme example of things not going the way we planned. And hopefully none, of you, hopefully none of you had that experience. But in a group this size, I know that we've all had that experience of, of waking up or having plans change on us and having to adjust on the fly. Having our idea of what we think should happen disrupted and having to figure out what to do now in response. See, those circumstances are going to happen a lot to us by nature of the fact that we aren't really in control of our lives, are we? We are the created, not the creator. We are the subjects, not the sovereign. So the question for us, the question for us becomes, how do we respond in those instances? How do we react to those circumstances? What do we do when things don't go as planned? We might consider that it's an obvious answer. You trust God, right? I mean, we can say that. We've said that to ourselves. We've said that to others. We've said that to our family members. You know what? We really just need to trust God right now. But I want to make sure that we know what that actually means. What does it look like to trust God? Let's make sure that that's not just a a platitude that we throw out there when things get crazy. Oh, you know what? Let's just batten down the hatches and trust God. Let's just lay on the floor of our car and, and trust God. What does it look like to trust God? That's what we're going to look at in our text together tonight from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Chapter 15 ended in this way with things not exactly going as planned. 1 Samuel 15 verse 28. And Samuel said to him, to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. 
So here we have Saul barely into his reign as king, and Samuel is called to deliver him a message that says this, hey, you know what, Saul? You're done. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you. Yahweh has removed the kingdom of Israel from you, and he's given it to someone else, someone who is better than you. This wasn't going according to Saul's plan. This wasn't going according to Samuel's plan. And in 1 Samuel 15, 35, we see Samuel's reaction. It says, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But, it says in our text, Samuel grieved over Saul. You see, Samuel's initial reaction to things not going as planned was grief. Was grief, and not just any grief. This is the type of grief that accompanies one who's mourning the death of a loved one. This word in the Hebrew is the type of grief that somebody experiences when somebody who they love, who's close to them, who's in their family, dies. That's how upset Samuel was over Saul's rejection. Why? Why was Samuel so upset? You have to remember, Samuel didn't know David. We have the benefit of knowing what's coming. We have the benefit of knowing that that David's right around the corner. And so we get excited for that. Samuel, all Samuel knew was God had said, hey, I've provided someone else, and this guy's going to be better than Saul, but, but Samuel had no frame of reference for what that meant. And so Samuel mourned, he grieved over Saul because he cared for Saul. Samuel had, had encountered Saul. Remember, Saul's looking for his lost donkeys. Samuel had privately anointed Saul. Samuel had encouraged Saul, saying, Saul, look, I know you're from this this tribe from the middle of nowhere that's, that's not important, but hey, God's got plans for you. Then Samuel had brought Saul back before Israel and anointed him publicly. Remember the casting of lots, and it fell on Saul, and Saul's hiding in the baggage, and Samuel goes and, and gets him and brings him forward and says, behold, Israel, you're king. And then Samuel had been the voice of God to Saul along the way, delivering the prophecies from God all along the way to Saul, and now Saul had been set aside. Saul had been rejected. And so Samuel was mourning. He also cared, though, for Israel. And so Samuel was probably thinking about his people at this time, thinking, man, well, if it's not Saul, then who is it? Are our people going to be left without, without a leader? Are our people going to be okay during the transition? Who's this new king going to be? And I'm sure he mourned over Saul for the, the wasted potential. Saul was a mighty warrior. Saul was a a man of great stature. Saul could walk into a room and command the room with his mere presence. So Samuel grieved the loss of the the potential that Saul had. And while some grief was appropriate, after all, Saul's failures had even produced grief in the heart of God himself. 1 Samuel 15, 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We talked about that word last week, regret. It's not the regret that we feel when we've made a mistake. It's a regret. It's a, a deep emotional pain that the Lord felt over having made Saul king. And so even God was grieved over Saul. But the problem was for Samuel, Samuel despaired too long. God had very clearly shut the door on Saul. And it was time for Samuel to move on. And so chapter 16 opens up with God confronting Samuel regarding his ongoing grief. It says in 16.1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. How long, he says to Samuel. Okay, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to throw your pity party? How long are you going to mourn over one that I have rejected? It's time to move on. Grief's a, a common response for us when things don't go as planned. And really what we're doing is we're grieving the loss of something that we never really had to begin with. And yet, even though we never really had it, we still feel the pain of the loss, the pain of our plans not going the way we wanted them to. But while mourning is a a common, while grief is a common reaction to it, there's a danger in mourning too long over failed plans, over unfulfilled dreams, and over missed opportunities. And the danger is this, we can begin to question God's goodness. We can begin to doubt his sovereign outworking of his will in our lives when we spend too long grieving over plans that have gone awry, grieving over failed plans. When considering what it looks like to trust God when life doesn't go as planned, we begin with a warning tonight. You can write it down for point number one this way. Take care, take care not to linger at the threshold of closed doors. Take care not to linger at the threshold of closed doors. See, God had at one point in time declared that Saul would save Israel from her enemies. And again, his being chosen as king was so certain, so public, the casting of the lots, that it fell to Saul, that they brought him forward. This was God's man. God was anointing him to be the first king of Israel. Israel demanded a king and God had provided Saul. And so Saul, excuse me, Samuel and Israel had great plans for Saul and for his reign as king, but now he was being rejected and being set aside. Remember what had just happened right before we open up to the book of Samuel. What, what period had they just come out of again? Some rhymes with smudges, starts with a J. Judges, there you go. Okay, low-hanging fruit, guys. The period of the judges, right? And the period of the judges saw this time where uh, occasionally there would be a great ruler, a great judge. But then there would be long stretches of time where everyone did as they pleased. And so when Israel finally was fed up with it, they said, enough. We want a king like the nations. We want stability. We want to to go out before us and to fight our battles. We want someone we can see, somebody who's gonna be on a throne perpetually, ongoing, and we want him to have a dynasty, and we want to be just like everybody else. God, give us a king. And so God responds with Saul, and they had great hopes, and they had great plans for him. And we'll know from later in the text what kind of man his son Jonathan was. And you can imagine that they had begun to dream about Jonathan as their next king, and how great he would be as their next king. But now, the message that Samuel was going to deliver was, Saul, you're done God has set you aside. He's rejected you and he's going to anoint another one in your place. Things were not going according to plan. And so I wonder if you've ever had those times in your life like that where you saw a clear path forward but the Lord had another direction in mind. I experienced that when I moved my family from Kansas City to Arizona. I I had a plan and I thought I understood the plan. I accepted a position at a church to go and serve as an associate pastor for six months to a year and then transition for a guy who was going to retire to become the senior pastor after that. The problem was when I got there, 
the guy who was going to retire decided, you know what, I don't want to retire. And the elders of that church said, you know what, we like you and him, and we want you guys to both just work together and grow the church. That's almost verbatim what they said. The problem was there were differences between us theologically, differences that weren't going to work for us to try to lead the church together. With him on his way out the door, that wasn't a problem. But now all of a sudden with him staying there, it became clear that this was not where God was going to keep us, where God was going to have us stay. And I would like to tell you that I had the spiritual maturity to humbly acknowledge that he must have something else in store. But, you know, honestly, it, it, it was frustrating. It was really frustrating. We left a church we loved in Kansas City and, and moved out to the desert with scorpions and cactuses and cacti, one of those things, to a place where we didn't know anybody because we thought that was God's plan for our lives. And when we got there, that door shut. Thankfully, I had faithful friends who wouldn't let me linger at the threshold of that closed door. Faithful friends who encouraged me to look on to what the Lord might still have in store. And so we ask, what's our initial response when God closes a door in your life or when God redirects you in life? How long does it take you to move past that initial sense of disappointment? Are there closed doors in your life that you're still mourning over even though it's been years or maybe for some of you even decades that you're still longing for? Are you still playing the what if and if only game? Well, if only this had worked out, what would my life be like? Well, what if this had happened? What if this had not happened? I don't know if that's what Samuel was doing, but you could see how maybe he was doing that. Uh, if only Saul hadn't offered those sacrifices. If only Saul had been a, a better king. If, if only Saul hadn't been so arrogant. If only Saul hadn't been so prideful. What could it be, have been like? What, what would have Israel been like at that time? What could God have done through him? The problem with that when we do that, when we play the what if game, when we play the if only game, when we entertain those thoughts is this, we're communicating something about our confidence in God's goodness. We're communicating something about our, our confidence in his sovereignty, in his faithfulness, in his wisdom. And really what we're communicating is that we don't believe that he really is good. We don't trust that he really is sovereign. We don't believe that he really is faithful, and we don't believe that he really knows what's truly best for us. And so we say, man, my life would be so much better if only. Romans 8, 28. We know what? That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that? We can stencil it on the walls above our pantries all we want. But when the rubber meets the road, and, and not when we get the bonus, not when we get the new car, not when we get the new house, not when our marriages are good, but when things are on the rocks, do we still believe that all things work together for good? Are we still willing to trust God when doors close that we wanted to open? When we spend too long grieving over missed opportunities, we're in effect suggesting by our behavior that we feel that our plans were better than God's. We're idolizing our wisdom 
over and above his wisdom. We're suggesting that we know better than God what's good for us and for our families. And the simple reality is it's, it's not true. We don't. Trusting God involves acknowledging we don't know what's best for us. He does. Again, my friends, after the situation in Arizona, reminded me that trusting in the Lord often times removes, rem, excuse me, let me back up, reverse, rewind. Trusting God oftentimes involves moving forward even when we don't know what's next. So you say, well, how do I do that? Well, you start by returning to where he has you right now. Getting your mind out from, from the fantasy land of where you want to be, of where you had planned to be, of where you had hoped to be, and returning and refocusing on where the Lord has you right now. And once you do that, it's setting yourself to be faithful in the tasks that he's given you right now where you are. Not longing for different tasks, not longing for a different job description, not longing for a better job than you have or a better role than you have. It's saying, okay, God, right now, faithfulness to you is being faithful in what you've given me. And so what you've given me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And it involves prayer. Praying, praying for the right perspective, praying for the the ability to be faithful to the Lord and praying that he would make clear where to go from there. God had moved on from Saul, and Samuel didn't have to wait long to find out where God wanted him to go, did he? He said, Samuel, stop mourning. Get over it. You've cried your river. Build your bridge. Get over it, right? Now I'm going to send you someplace. I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and you're going to go there, and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be king in the place of Saul. This is the one Samuel had prophesied about back in 1 Samuel 15, 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. It's like the recent national championship. Did anybody watch that in college football? Yeah, so I was supposed to be there, but one of my kids got sick. The nerve, right? Luke, who's two, he got croup and wasn't breathing the night before, so I, you know, I felt like maybe I shouldn't go to the football game the next day. Anyways, it was a great game, right? But at halftime, what happened? Nick Saban, who everyone is like, well, he's brilliant. He's a mastermind. He benched his starting quarterback. The guy who at the time was, what, 15 and 2? He benched him, and everybody's looking around going, what is he thinking? Talk about things not going as planned. You get to the national championship and bench your starting quarterback at halftime? And what did he do? He brings in this guy named Tua, last name I'm not even going to try to butcher. And he hands the reins to him, a freshman. And he says, go for it. If you guys have this DVR, spoiler alert, but it's been way too long. I'm not even sorry at this point. And, and Tua comes in the game. And at that point, I'm sure you had a lot of Jalen Hurts fans, a lot of Alabama fans that were upset, don't, didn't you? This isn't right. This isn't how things are supposed to go. This isn't going according to plan. Fire Saban. I wonder how many p- tweets went out, fire Saban at halftime. But then Tua comes in and he leads one of the most amazing dramatic comebacks that I've ever witnessed in in a college football game. And I don't like Alabama. And all of a sudden, all those people that were saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're now saying, oh, Jalen who? Bench Jalen. Tua forever, right? See, it turns out that, that Saban did know what he was doing. Just really lucky. But it turns out he did know what he was doing. The change was necessary, and it worked out better for the team. 
That's what's going on with Israel. God's removing Saul. Everybody's up in arms. But once David comes on the scene, they're going to see what Samuel was told. Hey, this guy's better than Saul. He's better for Israel. And so for us, we need to get over those times in our life where God closes doors. There's no trusting God in the lands of what ifs and if onlys. And so we need to take care not to linger at the threshold of closed doors. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, verse 6 of chapter 16. When they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The deck was stacked in favor of Eliab or Eliab. He was the eldest of Jesse's sons, and he had a stature like Saul's. He walked in the room, and, and just by looking at him, Samuel looked at the guy and said, man, this is the guy. He's the one. He's got king written all over him. He's capable of leading a nation. He's fit for battle. He's got a physical presence that's going to command authority and respect from the people. But God had, had looked beyond those things. He saw the whole makeup of Eliab. And remember, God was able to do that. Why? Because Psalm 139, God was instrumental in informing Eliab while Eliab was still in his mother's womb, wasn't he? God literally knew Eliab inside and out. And he said, this isn't the man. He's not the right one. The same would be said of Abinadab and Shema and four of his other sons, of, of Jesse's other sons who were pre presented before Samuel, leading Samuel finally to go, okay, Jesse, who do you have left? God was clear, go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. You're Jesse, right? Yep. You're the Bethlehemite, right? Yep. Okay, where are you hiding the next one? There's got to be someone still here because it's none of these six. Verse 11, are all your sons here? Jesse responds, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. No one in that culture would have assumed David would have been fit for king. He was the youngest of seven children. In fact, Jesse hadn't even bothered to invite him to the sacrifice. Surely he could have gotten a, a servant to go out and watch the sheep for a couple hours. But it was so far from the, the realm of possibility, he wasn't even considered worthy to, to be present for, for the meal, the sacrificial meal, with their honored guest and Samuel. And then all of a sudden they start going through and, and looking for the Lord's anointed. And at this point, Jesse's clued into why Samuel's there. And he's still not saying, oh, wait, I need to go get David. Samuel has to look at him and say, where's, do you, who else do you have? Oh, well, well, there's David, but he's the runt, man. He's the runt of the litter. He's out with the sheep. He's keeping the animals. Samuel says, go get him. We're not sitting down. Nobody's eating is basically the translation of that text. Nobody's eating until he gets here. So Jesse sends for David, and David shows up, and the Lord says, this is the one. Anoint him. See, God didn't concern himself with the opinions, the estimation of men, and neither should we. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Paul writes there, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God showed what is low and chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If Samuel had presented David and Eliab before all of Israel and said, Hey, choose your king, who do you want? Who do you think they would have chosen? Eliab. Everything about Eliab said king. Nothing about David said king. But God doesn't evaluate the way that you and I evaluate. We know the, the phrase, the statement, the verse, well, God, man looks at the external, but the Lord looks where? At the internal. He looks up at the makeup of the man. Man, we know what this world holds out and defines for us as manliness, don't we? This version of success that the world holds out there for us and says, here, come pursue this. Status, wealth, zip code, retirement, house, car, family, etc. All of those things are supposed to define success according to this world. But perhaps outside of family, you're not going to find any of those within the pages of Scripture connected to what successful manhood looks like. What does it look like? Mark 10, 43-44. Jesus says this, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You're not going to read that in the latest business books that are hitting the bookshelves. Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him promote himself. Let him step on everybody else on the way up the corporate ladder. Let him strive for the biggest house and the nicest car. No, he says let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How about Philippians 2, 3 through 4? How is successful living defined that way? Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the things that define God's man. Service, self-denial, Humility. And these aren't the attributes that show up on a resume or from looking at the physical appearance. These are part of what make us up internally. That's what God's looking for. That's what God was looking for in David. That's what he knew he had in David. Think about the scene. David's coming in from the fields from keeping the sheep. He didn't jump in and take a quick shower and slap some Old Spice on on the way in. He comes in wearing shepherd's attire, smelling like a shepherd. He comes in unprepared to appear before Samuel, to appear before the, the sacrificial process that was taking place, to appear for the, the judgment of whether or not he should be the anointed one. He comes in unkempt, unaware, and yet he was God's man. 
I guarantee you David didn't win most likely to be Israel's next king in high school. Think about it for a minute. I was, I was thinking about this today. We, we take it for granted because we know the rest of the story, but David had no aspirations to the throne of Israel at any point in his life until this very moment. He didn't entertain the thought that he could be the king of Israel. He was a shepherd boy, the youngest of, of seven. His future was tending his father's sheep and being faithful and doing that. Yet all along, God was preparing him for the role that he knew he would play. From the moment he was born, from the moment he was conceived, God knew David was going to be his man to replace Saul. From here, the, the scene shifts back to Saul, who had been sent a harmful spirit from the Lord. Prior to this, the spirit of Yahweh had rushed upon Saul on numerous occasions, but now the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and rushes upon David. Again, a, a symbol of the fact that God had rejected Saul and anointed David. And it says, in place, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. This is a, a difficult phrase for some of us to, to wrap our minds around. A harmful spirit from the Lord. How can God send a harmful spirit? How can God send an evil spirit? I want to suggest two options here for us. First, God is sovereign, right? Does his sovereignty extend over the realm of Satan and his demons? Yeah, absolutely it does. Think about Jesus in the Gerasenes when he goes to the, the demoniacs that are there. What's, what are the demons, what do the legion of demons plead with Jesus? Let us, give us permission, Jesus, to go into the herd of pigs. See, they know even, even to, to, to make their next move at that point in, in the presence of the Son of God, they have to have his divine permission to go anywhere. Or how about where it's seen probably most clearly, the book of Job, right? Satan appears before God. Where have you come from? From roaming to and fro across the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the world. Well, of course there's no one like him, says Satan. But let me go after him. Give me what? Give me permission. Even the one who's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of, of the legions of demons, has to have the permission of God to do anything. And so we can understand the fact that a harmful spirit from the Lord comes because we can understand the fact that God is sovereign. That God can permit whatever he chooses to permit. On the other hand, though, the, the grammatical construct here in the Hebrew isn't so much an evil spirit, but a spirit whose effects are harmful. A spirit whose impact is detrimental to the one that he's going after. And so this isn't necessarily a demon that's being dispatched from the Lord. This is simply a spirit, a messenger, an angel of the Lord who's being dispatched to accomplish his purpose in the life of an unregenerate individual here in the person of Saul. And the impact of this, this dispatch, this service that he was sent on, was not going to be good for Saul. So this doesn't necessarily mean that this is a demon coming from God, but it could simply be an angel whose impact, whose effects are harmful. Either way, whether he permitted it or prompted it, the impact that this spirit has on, on Saul is the word harmful. It means tormenting. It means to instill terror. So this was a spirit that rushed upon Saul that just left him in, in turmoil within him, the angst, the anxiety. 
The closest thing I can think to of, of an example of this might be when Nebuchadnezzar has his dreams and he's unable to sleep because he's terrified of what he saw. And so one of the servants comes to Saul and says, well, hey, why don't you get a, a musician to come and play the lyre? Come and play the, the, the lyre, the, the stringed instrument to, to soothe you. And so in God's perfectly woven tapestry, one of them had heard David play the lyre before. Do you see God's amazing sovereignty in all this? The fact that there was a servant in the court of Saul at that very moment who had heard David, the shepherd boy that nobody knew from Adam at this point, had heard that David played the lyre and heard that he was pretty good at it. So he said, hey, why don't we call David and bring David in? In verse 18, we read that David was a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. How can David be a man of valor and a man of war when he hasn't fought any battles at this point? Well, it's likely that this was David writing the coattails of his family's reputation. They knew Jesse. They knew the Bethlehemites. They knew the reputation they had, and they assumed the, that David was likewise. And so they said, go get David. He'll be a good fit for us. And it says, and the Lord is with him. Again, David's intimacy with the Lord was known even by the servant of Saul. And so David is brought in to serve Saul. David's journey from the fields to the fortress, from the cow patties to the castle. I don't know if there were cows out there, but sheep, it just, the alliteration didn't work. Okay, guys? Before Samuel had showed up to the sacrifices, no one would have imagined David playing the lyre for King Saul, would they? No. His dad didn't even see fit to bring him to the sacrificial meal with Samuel, let alone to suggest that he go play his instrument for the king of Israel. But God knew exactly where he wanted him, where he needed him, and he opened the door to get him right there. Point number two tonight is this. This is our last point. Be ready for God to leave where he needs you. I use that word needs loosely. I know God doesn't need any of us, so please don't come up to me afterwards and say, you know, God doesn't really need us. I get that. But be ready for God to lead you where he needs you, where he wants you to serve, where he has designed in his sovereign plan for you to be. Again, David's journey, God's sovereignty over the last two chapters. Saul's rejected. David's provided. Samuel's dispatched to Jesse's house. Jesse's other sons, six of them, were rejected. David is anointed. Saul receives a harmful spirit. One of his servants suggests music to soothe the spirit. Another one remembers David out of the blue that he plays the lyre, and David is brought in to the service of Saul. It's pretty amazing when we step back and consider it, isn't it? Do you think David had planned any of that for his life? See, we talk about life not going as we planned, and, and it's not always a bad thing when it doesn't go as we planned, is it? Sometimes it's a, a very good thing. I mean, think about how beneficial it was for David to be in Saul's court. Now, not so much the throwing the spear. We'll get to that part. That's not great, dodging a spear, fearing for his life. But think about everything that David learned about royal life and administration while serving in the court of Saul. Think about his experience watching Saul's warriors that he gained. Think about his close friendship that was formed because he was able to come into the presence and service of Saul. See, God wanted David in a specific spot and orchestrated things to make sure that that's exactly where he ended up. Consider this from two angles tonight, if you will. First, 
maybe there's a place that you really want to be. You have plans. You have a desire. You're working towards a, a goal, towards an end. And you're saying, Lord, this is what I want. If that's you, trust that if it's God's will for you to be there, he will get you there. You don't have to grab the reins from God. Continue to be faithful right now where you are, and he will open the doors to get you where you want to be if that's part of his will. Guys, I, I never thought I'd be standing here in my entire life, ever. You can ask my wife, my, my in-laws. I always thought that I'd, I'd maybe serve in churches of 100 to 200 people. Guys, the, the church that I was at before this, we were doing well if we got 100 people to show up on Sunday morning. I never thought I'd be here, not in my wildest dreams. It's only God's grace that I'm standing here tonight as it is. I didn't, this was not part of my plan. It was part of his plan. And so before I got here, what was he calling me to do? He was calling me to be faithful where he had me as he opened the doors necessary to bring me where he wanted me. But there's another angle here, and that is this. If God is opening doors for you, walk through them. Whether you want to or not, walk through them. You may not feel qualified. You may not love the direction at first. But if it's where God wants you, resisting his sovereign guidance is a waste of your time. If God is leading you, there's a reason behind it. He will equip you. He will provide for you. He may even change your heart about the direction that he's leading you. But he will get you where he wants you. So for Samuel and for David, two different ways, two different perspectives, life didn't necessarily go as they had planned in chapter 16. Saul had been set aside. That wasn't according to David's plan, or Samuel's plan. David was anointed and ushered into the court of the king. That was not according to David's plan. Both of them, though, had to answer the same call to trust God. And so tonight, are you ready to return right now to what he has for you today, tonight? Not what you want to be doing. Not what you wish you were doing. Not looking back at that closed door in your life and saying, man, if only I was doing this instead, my life would be better. But to say, right now, Lord, this is where you have me. This is what you have for me to do, and I'm going to be faithful in it. And are you ready for him to lead you where he needs you, even if it's not part of your plan for your life? Are you ready to trust God? I don't know about you, but if I was living in Hawaii right now, I'd have some trouble trusting those emergency notifications when they popped up on my phone. What chaos that must have been. In fact, I know it was. We've got friends that are stationed there. Her husband's stationed in South Korea right now, but she and her kids were in Hawaii, and she was on Facebook talking about how terrifying it was to sit there for 38 minutes and not have any idea what's going on. And yet in our world, when we encounter chaos, when we encounter things that don't go according to plan, the answer has to be trust God. Trust God. Where else are we going to turn? He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's the one who is in control of all things. And so I'm not suggesting a fatalistic resignation of trusting God. Remember, Romans 8, 28 does mean he's working all things together for your good. I'm just saying, guys, 
he's the one that we need to turn to. How do we turn there? Well, we can't linger over our disappointments. We can't play the what if and if only game. We've got to be ready to move on and move on to where he's going to lead us. So trust him with what's past. Trust him with what's right now. And trust him as he leads you forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that things always go according to your plan, even when they don't go according to our plans. We thank you that you are perfectly wise, that you see the end from the beginning. You've declared it so. So that as you work things out in our lives, we can have confidence when we don't see 2020 in the midst of them. We can have confidence knowing that you are working together for our good, that you are in control, that nothing has caught you off guard, that nothing has surprised you. And so, Lord, help us to be men of faith. Help us to be men like Samuel, who didn't argue with you, who didn't protest, but who got up and went to Jesse's house, who didn't question you when David was brought before, but anointed him to be the next king of Israel. Lord, help us to be men like David, men who in right here, right now, even if we don't know that, that, that we are being faithful to you and where you have us so that we are prepared for where you're leading us. Lord, help us to be men like David who are, are ready to go into an environment that's, that's foreign, that's totally unlike anything else that we've ever experienced because we're confident that you're the one who's bringing us there and leading us there. Lord, make, make us men of, of great trust in you so that no matter what this world throws at us, we're ready for it. Not in our own wisdom, our own confidence, our own skill, but because we're trusting you and following you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this evening. In Christ's name, amen.